we're certainly thankful that God has permitted us the opportunity to assemble today. And we look forward always to the first day of the week for, among other things, the beautiful blessing of worship. In Psalm 89, verse number 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. We've come together today as the Pippin Church of Christ, excited about the thrill of coming together because we can worship. Why do that? You may have noticed in the bulletin, that's the title I chose to this particular lesson, and this introductory page will prompt us and motivate us as we move into a question about one of the critical attributes of your life and mine as Christians. You may have noted in that text read just a moment ago from Luke 17, verse number 10, that even when we've done that which was commanded of us, we still are such that we're unprofitable servants. It was our duty to do that. It seems to me that that has much to say about our life in Christ Jesus. It has much to say about the thinking that you and I would present as we address what it's like day by day to serve God faithfully. Our duty... What are some of our duties then as Christians? As you can perhaps can see at the bottom of that slide, that has some far-reaching implications. Our focus today will just really be on one attribute or one aspect of it. Would you think with me for the next few moments about what we're doing right now? The assemblies, what will take place tonight at 5.30 and Wednesday at 7 p.m. and what took place at 9.30 this morning. As you think about all of those things, let's begin our consideration in the following way. You may have noticed at the very top of that slide, the precious church that our Savior purchased and established, it was He who dictated its terms. And it was He who set forth in the character of the significance which it has. He didn't leave that to, to, to the human family. In fact, in Matthew 16, 18, He said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in Colossians 1.18, He is affirmed to be its head. For that reason, we notice so quickly in Colossians 3, verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Jesus, in fact, constructed that church, and He did so in such a way that it had neither spot nor blemish. Ephesians 5.27, it was perfect, absolutely perfect. That means since He commanded it to assemble, the assemblies are absolutely critical. They are a part of what makes it perfect. Maybe it is in light of that. We know the New Testament is filled with these attributes of what the precious assemblies set before us. The church worships. The church, when it comes together, it has the enjoyment of prayer and praise. It sings these lovely songs of praise and adoration to God. True enough, isn't it, that in light of all those things, since the very beginning, the church has been an assembling people. Maybe some have been under the impression, well, humankind thought up this business of the assembly centuries after the church was established. But that isn't so. When you and I revisit the book of Acts, we notice that those folks were assembling people from the very first day the church was established. In Acts chapter 2, verse number 42, remember, that's the day the church began. The text says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. 
And those were all attributes of things that you did in assemblies. They contributed, they gave, they enjoyed doctrine and fellowship. Not only that, you might immediately appreciate in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, those early saints, you see, enjoyed the sweet blessing of assembly. They came together. They apparently were very eager to do that. You and I know we still, of course, do that these 20 centuries later, and we look forward to it, or at least we should. You may notice one of the next statements has to do with those early assemblies were more than just on Sundays. Again, throughout the ages, some may have thought, well, those early saints, they only met on Sunday. The other days of the week were left to themselves. Based on the book of Acts, that isn't so either. Could I call to your attention Acts 5.42? They met daily from house to house. Not only that, in Acts chapter 12, verses 5 and 12, here was a grouping of the church, and it wasn't Sunday. And they had come together for the purpose of prayer and mutual encouragement. May I say then that those assemblies as portrayed to you and me in the New Testament are of great significance. And those early saints appreciated the luxury and the blessing at that of not only meeting just on the first day of the week, but whenever the opportunity set forth by the elders was appropriate. Maybe in finality to that slide. The New Testament then immediately develops this point in the following way. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." There are a number of observations that might be worthy to make. First, there were some who were forsaking the assembly. And God said, don't do that. In addition, He said, not forsaking the assembly. There were some Hebrew Christians who perhaps due to the persecution and the duress of the moment, perhaps due to circumstances along that line, they had begun not to assemble. And God said, don't forsake those assemblies. One of the things you and I then can think about here is a directive matter that is a true consideration for you and for me to consider. It's our duty to do it, and if I fail to attend, if I fail to come together to these assemblies, notice again the text of Luke 17, 10. When we've done all that He commanded us, we're still unprofitable servants. What if we don't do what He commands us? What if we fail in that regard and in that light? A rather sobering thought, isn't it? As you and I close that slide, I'd like to offer you a number of New Testament considerations as to why these assemblies, as expressed by God, are so critical and why they're so crucial. Not only are they very telling in terms of your interpretation, your appreciation as well as mine, they are so significant because of the frequency with which the Lord mentions them. Reason number one, why is Wednesday at 7 p.m. so critical? What about 5.30 tonight, 9.30 this morning, 10.30 as well? Why are all of them so critically important? First, because God commands we be here. If at all possible, He expects me to be here, and so too does He expect that of you. Obviously, there can be circumstances that preclude it. 
There might be contagious sickness. There might be physical inability. But if I can be here every time the doors are open, this is where I need to be. And same for you, because God says so. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Now here were individuals, some of them at ancient time, who had begun not to attend as faithfully as they should. The word forsake didn't mean that they'd stopped going altogether. They just missed every now and then. He said, don't do that. The assemblies of the church are critically important. As you and I develop that, please note the next point. You and I can easily understand there are times again when we cannot be here. And God understands that. Notice the New Testament says when you come together, if you can't be here, God understands easily what that means. But if I can be here and I choose not to be, I've sinned. Let's say that again. If I can be here and I choose not to be, I have become guilty of sin. That development is so easy to understand from two different perspectives. First of all, this opening commandment, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It's almost as though the God of heaven appreciated that there would be the, tempt, the tendency on the part of the devil for this person not to attend as faithfully as he or she should. And hence, a direct negative commandment given in the Bible. But reason number two goes right along with it. This issue of calling it sin, continue to hold your finger open to that Hebrews 10 passage. You'll notice that we stopped in verse 25, but notice how verse 26 continues. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll read only verse 26 on this occasion. For if we sin willfully... There's the word sin. Now what's the context to what is he referring? He had just talked about forsaking the assembly. And now he says, if we sin willfully. God calls that a sin. Therefore, if I were to stand in judgment, being guilty of that purposeful sin, I can't hope to be saved. Not only that, he says, if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. My friends, this is serious business. This second reason then highlighting for us this consideration, would anyone be willing to say that the assemblies are bad? Would there be anyone who would offer the argument that to assemble is not a good thing? Surely none of us would be willing to say that. The assembly is where God is honored. His Word is revered. It's where praise and adoration is extended to Him. Surely if there's anywhere on earth that's a good place to be, it's the assemblies of the church. And yet James says in James 4, 17, For him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. May I submit to you of all places that would be imaginable for the proclamation of what is basically good, it'd be the assemblies of the church. And if I choose not to be there, I've become guilty of sin. You'll notice in that text of Hebrews 10.26, it said again, after we've received a knowledge of the truth. Here's a person who's become a Christian, baptized for the remission of sins, and yet that individual now chooses to willfully forsake the assemblies. Jesus Himself 
in the passage before us asserts there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Reason number three. Not only have these two prompted our thinking, but what about reason number three as well? There is something magnificent to be said about what God intended the assemblies to make available to us. It is a critical element, among other things, of spiritual, personal growth. Let's develop that very briefly in the following way. It is so, isn't it, that God commands us to grow spiritually. It isn't left to us as an optional matter. It isn't left to the Christian as an individual to decide for himself. If we please God, we must grow spiritually. A few verses that put that thought before us would include these. In 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and following, the Apostle Peter there said, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby. Here's a young individual, perhaps a person just recently baptized, and God asserts one of the most important things that you can ever do is to avail yourself of those environments whereby you're going to be able to grow. Now, where else would that be other than the services and assemblies of the church? There you can associate with and worship with faithful older brethren. You can avail yourself of the wisdom and the years of experience that they have had travailing in the crucible of the experiences of life. You can learn the blessed teachings of the Word of God. You'll notice in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 and following, a commandment is given to all of us. Add to your faith virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience. Now, pausing at that point, you'll notice the commandment was add. There is something as a dutiful Christian that you and I must do. I must add knowledge. The assemblies will make that possible. It will encourage that. It will set that thought before us. That thought alone should excite us to think with each passing Sunday and Wednesday, I can learn more of the Word of God and seek to implement it keenly and better. Isn't it fair to say that in 2 Peter 3.18, the marching orders given in many ways, the key verse in that whole book but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Notice again the imperative commandment to grow. How about you and I? Does that satisfy? Does it fit us well? This third reason has encouraged us to think about the fact that as Christians, a new person has come about. That old man of sin, remember, was buried. That new man needs the environment whereby he or she can proceed to grow in enlightenment and in knowledge and in faith. The assemblies are key elements of providing that. One last thought of that might be this. The Bible warns on a number of occasions, both in the Old and the New Testament, how that God looks very seriously on a lack, a famine of Bible knowledge. May I ask you to recollect Hosea 4. Here was the people of God. Now admittedly, they had that old law of Moses given to them, but over the course of time, they had not given to it the attention it deserved. And in verse number 6 of Hosea 4, God said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
they should have been filled with and openly a characteristic of that knowledge, but they had failed mightily. They didn't know it the way they should. Question for you and me today. You and I have been given by far the greatest document the world has ever known. It's the one that will be opened at judgment and your life and mine will be judged in accordance to it. How much of it do I know and how much of it do you know? Are we coming together at times to study it and learn it? 27 books, 260 chapters. It's critical. May I suggest that you and I give careful thought to those assemblies for those are times in which that word is lifted so highly. It's set before us in such a way that we're going to meet it again one day. Don't you want your life and mine to be such that the comparison is favorable then? Reason number four. In addition to these two in terms of sin and God's command, and now number three has been the personal encouragement of our growth. The fourth one. Would you be aware that it's very clear in the New Testament that the whole matter of these assemblies is such that one great feature of it, of course, is the adoration and praise to God. But another one that is not overlooked is the encouragement that we provide to other people. Those other brothers and sisters that assemble, we have obligation to them as we're about to study with some care. And hence, when we come together, we also encourage them and we edify them and we strengthen them. If I don't come together, I'm basically saying I really don't much care whether you're encouraged, strengthened, or edified or not. And of course, we all know that that won't get anybody to heaven. That kind of attitude that looks with a degree of distaste and displeasure on the well-being and welfare of others. Let's develop it using some of these thoughts. You noticed it in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 10 a moment ago. In that verse, which came just before the one that spoke about the forsaking of the assembly, verse 24 says, "...let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works." How is that to be done? The sentence doesn't end at the end of verse 24. Verse 25 says, don't forsake the assembly. We are commanded to encourage, to provoke one another by virtue of these assemblies. They are that significant. And when we come together, how many of each of us have been in situations when the day's been hard? The week perhaps has been so terribly challenging and I come to the services and I'm a bit down, if you please. But yet the encouragement that's provided by virtue of faithful Christians lifts you up and we're able to leave with a better perspective than when we came. Even aged saints, those who've been Christians for decades, they too get discouraged. Young Christians sometimes are discouraged. We all need to be encouraged. Could I ask you to notice, the welfare of the church is so significant that in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, God made this statement, that God would have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. But that salvation is only available in the body of Christ, according to Ephesians 5.23. And so the welfare of the church is of such signal importance. God in His infinite wisdom, constructed an organization. We call it the church. And it not only has within it, of course, the proper direction of homage and devotion to God, but it also encourages each other. 
This sojourn of life can sure pose its problems, can't it? We all know it well. Challenges that often are very, very difficult. And yet there are those occasions when that special group of people come together. They offer encouragement. They offer comfort. They offer motivation. I see what he or she's been through, and they've stayed faithful. I I need to do it too. Maybe one by one as we think about these, look at those last set of characteristics. According to 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11, it is a grievous error to overlook this responsibility of encouraging each other. That very verse gives before us a commandment, edify one another. Notice it is written in the imperative presentation. We are told that we must do this. If we then fail to do it purposefully, again, we've just chosen to disobey God. It might well be in light of this fourth reason. Reason number five takes us to this consideration. So far, the reasons alone, any one of them would have been enough. But look how far God goes in helping you and I to see about the significance of these assemblies. Reason number five is this one. May I ask, as you think about the great significance of glorifying Jesus Christ, I understand well that during the course of the week, a faithful Christian will always seek, of course, to behave him or herself in a way to glorify Jesus. But there's something very special about the way these assemblies are described. Would you come with me to Acts 20, 28? There, as Paul addressed the elders of the church in Ephesus, it was to them that he said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now immediately you might notice that there was reference to not only yourselves, you elders, now you've got to live pure lives as well, but there's that flock over which you oversee. That flock, make sure that they're fed with the Word of God. To develop that, look at this. One of the signal blessings available to the church is this one. Let me invite you to read with me Ephesians 3 verse 21. After that descriptive statement is given, and after much is said in that chapter about the characteristics of the church, he says, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now let's again revisit some of the statements of that passage. Unto Him, who's the Him? God. Unto Him be glory in the church. Here is the characteristic of glorifying Jesus Christ our Lord. How is it done in the church? What does the church do on Sunday at 9.30, 10.30, 5.30, and Wednesday at 7? It assembles. And it does so because God commands it. And therefore, to bring glorification to Christ, I will do that which He's commanded and do that which the church is doing then. If I fail to assemble by choice... If I choose not to come together at those times, I am deliberately choosing not to glorify Jesus Christ. That's unimaginable. That's unthinkable. You and I would in fact hasten to appreciate that any circumstance we have, day or night, any day of the week, it should be our desire to glorify Him who died for us. And yet to purposefully choose not to do so, especially when the church is gathering those that honor His body, 
unthinkable. Maybe it is in light of that. Let's close that to notice Galatians 6 verse 7. In verses 7 and 8 of that chapter, the closing chapter of the Galatian letter, Paul wrote and said, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Notice God is not mocked. Some would say, but God, I know you said it, but it, I really don't think it's that important. May we never forget God isn't mocked. Wouldn't it be frightful to arrive at the judgment and make a statement like that? I know it's in the Bible. I heard it more than once, but I just never thought it was that important. And he says, how many times did I need to say it? Once would have been plenty. And yet there it is all the times we've seen this morning. To notice number six. Reason number six takes us back to that passage we just noted a moment ago, but we will in fact supply a few others with it. In the infinite wisdom of God, He saw fit to provide local congregations with men who would be its elders. Men who would be charged with a specific responsibility. And may we never forget, they not only watch for their own souls, but they watch for ours. They take very seriously getting all of us to heaven. They don't want any one of us to be lost. Not a one of us. Hebrews 13, 17 says, They watch for our souls. And notice, they were commanded, feed the flock. Let me ask, if, put yourself in the shoes of an elder. Here, Jesus Christ has charged me and challenged me with feeding this flock. How am I supposed to do it? What do I do to feed them? I think the first thing that would cross any of our minds, nothing is more important than this, and that which Jesus meant was the Word of God, I need to establish times where this group can come together and study the Bible and learn from it and appreciate what it means and encourage each other. Our elders have done that. 9.30, 10.30, and 5.30 on Sunday, 7 o'clock on Wednesday, our elders have set these assembly times before us, times that the flock will be fed. We need to be here at every one of them without fail if at all possible. There are times when, notice we're told, obey them which have the rule over you. We're told to listen to these elders. And as long as, of course, they are doing that which is in keeping with the Word of God, we must obey them. They have said we need to be here. Reason number six takes us to that very point. As you can begin to see, the assemblies are approached from a number of particulars and a number of perspectives, aren't they? How about reason number seven? Another reason to consider in light of these assemblies. May I suggest to you that there is an enemy lurking. As abundant as he is, the Bible has much to say about him. Let's in fact make an association, a correlation if you please, between that observation and that which takes place at these assemblies. I've asked you to develop it like this. Without a doubt, we all understand those basic verses that describe this enemy of ours. Oh, how cunning he is. Now notice that language. For the devil 
as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now that verse describes him as something that is very aggressive, something that is, in fact, very vehement in his character, like a roaring lion. That just highlights the fact that he's on the prowl. He's out to get you and me. And of all people on earth that are in his crosshairs, it's Christians. Let's face it, he's got everybody else. It's Christians that he wants. If that be said, and clearly it's true, then you and I can appreciate this. Not only is he described as a roaring lion, there are other verses that describe him as very cunning, very subtle, very crafty. May I say, the devil isn't going to just come out to you and say, here, I'm going to hopefully make you sin. I'm going to hopefully encourage you to sin. He never presents it that way. He presents it gradually and subtly and tries to rationalize it to where it seems okay. That's why we need these assemblies so much. I'm constantly reminded of what truth is. Issues are raised that though the world may consider controversial, God doesn't. He says, don't do it. And we're always reminded about the thoroughness and the matter of truth as seen in the Word of God. The devil has kept at bay as you and I think about these assemblies. We trust right now things of the devil are not lifted high in this assembly. It's the things of Jesus Christ. It's the things of truth. It's the things that accord to that which is faithful. The devil's end is, of course, well known to him, and it's well known to us as well. In Revelation 20, verse number 10, as well as Matthew 25, Jesus on that occasion, that latter one said, as he spoke about the devil, that there's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a frightful place. It's a place described as of outer darkness. It's a place described with pain and fire and anguish and worms that, that never die and fires that never quench. It's the most horrific place imaginable. Surely I would not want to be where he is. Surely no one in the right mind would want to be where that devil's going to be. And yet we know that the devil doesn't believe, James 2.19, and he has not obeyed the gospel, Hebrews 2, verse 16 and following, and he is forevermore consigned to a devil's hell. And surely I would want to be at a place where the truth of what it takes to get to heaven is highlighted and taught and encouraged. Reason number eight, eternal life. Eternal life. Every one of us have known from an early age that one of the things that the Bible sets before us is the fact that life in this flesh isn't permanent. We all know what's going to come to its end. We'll die or the Lord will return one way or the other. But there's coming a reality when we know there's life after death and we understand that there is coming a moment of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. The very one who wrote this book is going to be my judge. I want to live in accordance to what he said. It's the height of folly to expect him to judge in a way in my favor if I have taken the liberty to purposefully not do what he said to do. It may well be, 
in light of those things, this eighth point asks us to ponder the following question. While we're here in this flesh on earth, the assemblies of the church are critical. They're vital for the eight things that we've seen today. And as the example before us in the book of Acts teaches us, those early saints, it seems, were eager to meet any time, any day of the week. And as they did that, they, of course, were able to appreciate the instruction, the doctrine, the teaching that was set before them, and the mutual encouragement and edification that was theirs. As Christians, we need the assemblies. May I never think that I'm strong enough to not need them for all the reasons we've seen today. That can't be right. I know I'm thinking wrongly if that's what I think. We need these assemblies. And in them we find the strength and encouragement to walk faithfully through this life. May we each make it a high priority to be here. Anytime the doors are open, if I possibly can. And anytime I choose not to be when I could be, I'm guilty of sin. I'm guilty of purposefully and deliberately doing what Jesus has told me not to do. Blatant, overt sin. As we come to the close of that slide and the close of this lesson, I hope you've made plans for 5.30 tonight. And plans are to be here at 1701 Pippin Road in Cookville. And I hope you've already made plans for 7 o'clock Wednesday night to be here at 1701 Pippin Road in Cookville for the assembly of the Pippin Church of Christ. All of us are encouraged and commanded and asked to think with seriousness about what the assemblies involve and all that they entail. This summary, this conclusion, asks us to reflect on at least some of what we've learned this morning, and we'll use that to close our lesson. We've seen that the assemblies are highlighted among the most significant things in all of the New Testament. So important. So much so that you and I have seen eight special reasons as to why they are lifted with such highness, Everything from the absolute commandment of God to the nature of the fact that we're commanded to grow personally and to encourage others. And furthermore, that in that, of course, we keep the devil at bay and we, of course, seek to obey our elders as well as to honor Jesus Christ. This very day, as you examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, a commandment to us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, I trust that each of us will give thought to one of the attributes that illustrates and demonstrates our commitment, our faith, our devotion to God is our commitment to those assemblies. As the Bible has lifted them before us, we might in fact close our lesson with this rather interesting and profound question. If my life is such that I really don't look forward to the assemblies here on earth, what reason do I have to think that even if I made it to heaven, I wouldn't like it much. Because in Revelation 15, they're going to be praising God through all the ceaseless ages of eternity. If we don't like to sing and if we don't appreciate the things that take place here and now, it seems a guarantee that I wouldn't like heaven much even if I got there. And it seems certain I'll never get there. If you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation today, won't you do it while together we stand and while we sing?